Well, if you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you did bring one, I'd ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 16. 1 Corinthians 16, and listen carefully as we read the final chapter in this inspired letter. We bring our year-long sermon series in 1 Corinthians to a conclusion. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. As I read it, I remind you this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective ministry is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. It was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All of the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Word of the Lord. Well, near the end of the American Civil War, as General William Tecumseh Sherman was getting ready to break the back of the conservative or the Confederate army deep in the South, a strategic battle was being fought over military supplies. Confederate army, in a last-ditch effort to starve out, starve out Sherman's troops, was attacking the supply line, and one of the Union garrisons in charge of guarding the supply depot had come under major artillery fire. These northern soldiers fought bravely to defend the supply line, but eventually they were backed up into a fort where it looked like surrender and defeat was the only option. The enemy was pressing in hard on them. The situation looked completely bleak and hopeless, but suddenly one of the soldiers inside the fort saw a signal flag waving off in the distance with a message from General Sherman. He said, hold the fort, for I am coming. 
And encouraged by this promise, they continued to defend their position for another three hours until Sherman's reinforcements broke through the line and saved the day. And ultimately, as we know, the Union Army went on from there to win the war and to end the Southern Confederacy. Well, after the Civil War was over, a Christian hymn writer named Philip Bliss heard about this battle from one of the veterans, and he was inspired to write a hymn that became an instant success on both sides of the Atlantic. It's a hymn that we rarely sing anymore, but I remember learning and singing this hymn when I was young, and this is how the last verse goes. Fierce and long the battle rages, but our help is near. Onward comes the great commander, cheer my comrades, cheer. Hold the fort, for I am coming, Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven, by thy grace we will. The Christian life is war, friends. It is a battle against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. And as we've worked our way through Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, we have seen a church on the edge of defeat, weary from the battle, ready to give up, ready to give in. But now in the last two chapters of this letter, the Apostle Paul reminds these weary and battle-scarred Corinthians, help is indeed on the way, for Jesus, the commanding general, is coming again, and when he arrives on the scene with the armies of heaven, all of his enemies will be defeated, and the church militant will become the church at rest. In chapter 15, Paul reassures a weary church that help is on the way. But now in chapter 16, his final words to the troops is that they would stay engaged in the battle and hold the fort. As we wrap up our study in 1 Corinthians this morning and consider the message of this final chapter, I'd like to draw your attention to a series of five commands that we find in verses 13 and 14. Five commands that are full of military imagery. Five commands that remind us that our work here on earth is not yet done. Verse 13, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. With God's help, we're going to look at each one of those five commands this morning, holding the fort, standing our ground in the confidence that the general is on the way. Well, the first of the commands that we find here in verse 13 is the command to be watchful or to be alert, something that is absolutely crucial for success on the battlefield. Any army that gives way to complacency, that fails to keep a close eye on the enemy movements, is an army that is heading for disaster. This has proven to be the case time and time again throughout history. For the moment we let down our guard, get a little too comfortable, forget that we're in a battle, is the time that the enemy will see our vulnerability and move in for the strike. In the ancient world, there was a city named Sardis, a very famous city that was heavily fortified and built high up on top of a cliff. Sardis was a formidable city, and it seemed as though it would be impossible to conquer, but yet twice in our history, we know that this city was captured in the darkness of night and practically without any opposition at all. It was captured once by the Persians and a second time by the Greeks. And both times that the city of Sardis was captured, the enemy troops crept up silently towards the city wall only to discover that the guards on duty were either absent from their post or had fallen asleep. It was prideful overconfidence that ultimately spelled disaster for this mighty city. And that's why in the book of Revelation, when Jesus speaks to the believers in Sardis, He reflects on their history and He tells them to wake up. 
For if you don't wake up, he says, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So we've worked our way through 1 Corinthians. One of the weaknesses that we have clearly seen in this ancient church is a failure to stay awake and alert, a form of spiritual complacency that had led the Corinthians to the brink of disaster. Although Paul had come into this city with a determination to preach nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the Corinthians had since let down their guard. They had allowed a Trojan horse to enter the camp. The wisdom, the philosophy of the world had become more important to them than the simple, straightforward preaching of the Gospel. Worldly wisdom had lulled them to to sleep, causing them to value the outward skill and rhetoric of the preacher more than the message being preached, and thus they were drifting away from the Gospel. Instead of fighting side by side against the enemy, the Corinthians were fighting against one another, and they were seeking the approval of the non-Christian world, dividing into little cliques and factions, even dragging one another into the public courts. A lack of spiritual awareness opened the door for false teachers to sneak in, and the devil had gained a dangerous foothold in the church. We've also seen in this series how how a lack of awareness led the Corinthians down the road of moral failure as sexual sin was being tolerated and justified under the guise of Christian love and liberty. The moral fiber of the church had become so debased, so compromised, that even the pagans outside of the church were starting to blush, and the reputation of Christ was being ruined in the public square. And then finally, this lack of alertness had caused some of them to forget that they were in a battle at all. And so in chapter 4 of this letter, Paul takes them to task for acting like little kings and queens while in other cities across the Roman Empire, the Christians were struggling and suffering, even dying for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. The church in Corinth was acting as though Jesus had already returned when in reality the bullets were still whizzing past their heads and the casualties were being heaped up. They were living in a state of spiritual delusion. And Paul's command in this final chapter is to wake up, to sober up, get your head back in the game. You know, back in the days of Nehemiah when the Jewish exiles were returning into the land of Israel and rebuilding the fallen and broken down walls of Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel understood the importance of watchfulness as they were surrounded by powerful enemies who desperately wanted them to fail. And Nehemiah understood the danger at hand. He instructed the men working on the wall to lay their bricks and mortar with one hand and to hold the sword in the other hand, doing the work that still needed to be done, but at the same time remaining totally vigilant and alert. Brothers and sisters, the same kind of spiritual watchfulness has been the duties of God's people not only in Nehemiah's generation or in Paul's generation, but in our generation. For the spiritual battle is still raging all around us. There is still much work for the Christian church to do. And so Christian friends, let us heed the instruction of Paul and the apostles who tell us to be sober-minded and watchful. For indeed we have an adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We also have a majestic king who is coming back to this earth at an hour we do not know in order to defeat his enemies and to vindicate his church as he promised he would do. Wake up, therefore. Strengthen that which remains. That's the call of Christ to the church in each and every generation. Well, Paul's first command to the embattled Corinthians is to be watchful and alert. But secondly, he tells them here in verse 13, they must stand firm in the faith. 
It's one thing to be asleep when the enemy sneaks into the camp. It's quite another thing to be wide awake in the heat of the battle when the enemy is pressing in on you from every side. The temptation that soldiers face in situations like that is to lose their courage and to fall back to a place of safety. But the call of Christ on the church is to stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit and never to retreat. You'll notice here in the text, Paul does not say stand firm in your faith. Rather, he says stand firm in the faith. Paul is not talking here in our text about our own subjective experience of faith, which is often prone to waver and tremble. He's speaking here in this verse about the faith, the actual content of our faith, which of course is the gospel. You see, friends, when it comes to the gospel message, it's laser focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul is telling us we must courageously take a stand. We must refuse to give way to the enemy, never compromising the truth, never changing the message in order that we would feel more safe and secure on the field of battle. In the ancient city of Corinth, the constant pressure of a pagan society that was hostile to Christ and the gospel had taken its toll on the Christian church. At first, the believers stood courageously on the message that Paul had delivered to them. But over time, the constant attacks of the enemy had worn down their resolve and had opened them up to compromise. Some of these believers wanted to be respected and admired by their non-believing neighbors, and they were therefore moving away from the foolishness of the cross in order to embrace the so-called wisdom of the world. They were tired of being mocked and ridiculed and persecuted, and the solution they had come up with was not to abandon the gospel altogether, but rather to modify the gospel, to change the gospel, to update the gospel ever so slightly so that the message of Christ would be less offensive to the world. Some of them had compromised the gospel by participating in idolatry, going into the pagan temples and sleeping with the cult prostitutes, or else taking part in pagan rituals on Saturday night and then going to church on Sunday morning. In the heat of the battle, the Corinthians were trying to keep one foot in the church and the other foot in the world, having enough Christianity to keep them out of hell, but enough of the world to make them feel at ease. Their pursuit of cultural relevance and seeker sensitivity had compromised the gospel to the point that the doctrine of future resurrection was being denied. And Paul sees from a distance what is happening on the front line and he tells them in these closing verses when it comes to the gospel message, there can be no compromise. There can be no retreat into safer ground. They are to hold their position at any cost not to give an inch of ground to the enemy. For as we've said several times in this series, whenever we try to change the gospel in order to make it more attractive to the non-believing world, we are never improving the gospel. We are only losing the gospel. And so these believers needed to stand their ground, and so we need to stand our ground, embracing the foolishness of the cross, insisting on the essential doctrines of our faith, disciplining those who had put the church at risk by defecting from the field of battle. When it comes to the message of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins, there can be no compromise and no retreat. The call of our commander in every culture, in every generation, is to stand firm and to hold the fort. Well, the third and the fourth commands given to us in verse 13 are very closely related to one another. The command to act like men and the command to be strong. 
field of battle is no place for children. And that seems to be Paul's point here in these verses. Effectively telling the Corinthians they need to grow up and to start acting their age. Because alongside the spiritual complacency and the spiritual compromise was a sense of spiritual immaturity. Men and women who had been in the Christian faith for a number of years, but were still acting like a bunch of helpless newborns. The Apostle Paul has pointed out this tendency at several points along the way, most notably in chapter 3 when he writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Like any good and loving parent, Paul wants his spiritual children to grow in the faith. He wants them to get off the milk bottle. He wants them to start eating the solid food of God's Word. But here are the Corinthian converts, years later, still bickering with one another over insignificant things, still snubbing one another at the Lord's table, still trying to provoke one another to jealousy with their spiritual gifts. It is the kind of infantile behavior you'd expect out on the school playground. And so Paul says to them in chapter 14, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. This church was filled with spoiled spiritual crybabies who could hardly take care of themselves, never mind look out for the interests of Jesus Christ and to earnestly contend for the faith. And so the Apostle Paul, at the risk of hurting their feelings, tells them here in verse 13, they need to grow up. They need to act their age. Act like men, he says. Be strong. Corinthian immaturity was seen in their childish bickering. It was also seen in their lack of contentment and satisfaction. Chapter 7, Paul tells them to be content with their marital situation or with their singleness. In chapter 12, he tells them to be content with their spiritual gifts. In chapter 11, he tells them to be content with the gender role that God has sovereignly given to them. The women in the church are to embrace their femininity. The men in the church are to embrace their masculinity and be the spiritual leaders that God has designed them to be. Christian men, Paul says, are to look and to act like men. Christian women are to look and to act like women. Equal partners in the marriage relationship. Equal bearers of the divine image. But yet in the economy and design of God, two different genders with two distinct roles to play. Now in ancient Corinth, these gender distinctions were being blurred and distorted in the church. And today we see the exact same thing happening in our own culture. We have a crisis of masculinity. We have a crisis of femininity. And this crisis will have devastating effects in our homes, in our churches, and in our larger society if we don't sort it out and get back on track. Act like men. Be strong. The battlefield is not the place for immaturity and bickering and backbiting. It is a place for strength. It is a place for courage. It's the place for manliness. You know, one of the most inspiring stories that came out of the English Reformation is a story of two very godly and gifted preachers named Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, one of them the namesake of Ridley College in St. Catharines. Ridley and Latimer were influential leaders in the Church of England. They did much to advance the cause of the Gospel in those early years of the Reformation. 
But in the year 1555, they were both arrested at the order of Queen Mary. They were taken to the Tower of London where they were interrogated by the Catholic bishop and then condemned to be burned at the stake. And as he was being tied to the wood on the day of his execution, Bishop Ridley prayed, O Heavenly Father, I give Thee most hearty thanks that Thou hast called me to be a professor of Thee even unto death. I beseech Thee, Lord God, have mercy on this realm of England and deliver it from all her enemies. The fire was then lit and Ridley cried out once again, Into Thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But unfortunately, the wood that was piled up around him was green and wet and it was burning slowly so that he started to cry out in pain, Lord, have mercy on me. I cannot burn. Let the fire come to me. I cannot burn. Hugh Latimer, who was tied up beside him in the flame, saw that his brother in Christ was in great distress and called out to him in that final moment of agony, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England by God's grace as I trust will never be put out. You know something? Those words of encouragement spoken by one dying man to another have always stood out in my mind as an inspiration to stay the course in the Christian life no matter what the cost may be. For as followers of Christ who are on the winning side of the conflict, we can always be of good comfort. We can always play the man. Christian men, Christian women who are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is never in vain. Fifth and final command given in verse 14 of our text is probably the most important one of them all. It is the command to do all things in love. All the other commands that we've examined so far this morning are full of military imagery. But Paul now gives us a commandment that must undergird everything else in the Christian life. It is the command to do all things in love. Although we don't often associate love with warfare, the Christian concept of love is not so much about warm and fuzzy feelings deep inside. Rather, Christian love is the willingness to sacrifice ourselves for other people following in the footsteps of the One who sacrificed Himself for us. Christian love is all about dying to ourselves so that others can live. And in past weeks, we've taken a close look at Paul's definition of love as we find it in chapter 13. Love is patient, Paul says, and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. When we define love in the biblical sense, we understand it's primarily something that we do for the sake of another person and not an emotion that we feel inside. And once we understand this, we can see how essential this attribute is for success in the battle. Soldiers in the military who train together, who live together, who fight alongside one another on the front lines and down in the trenches know better than most of us what it means to exercise self-sacrificial love for their brothers. Every year on Remembrance Day, we think about the thousands of men and women who bravely fought in past wars, who made incredible sacrifices so that you and I can live in freedom. And in a sense, this is the most profound type of love that we can know, a willingness to die so that someone else can live. Lord Jesus laid out this same principle of love in John 15:13 where he said greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. 
And of course, we know it was the Lord Jesus more than anyone else who showed that kind of love when He hung on the cross and died there in our place for our sins, bearing in His body all of the righteous and holy wrath that we deserve. This was the greatest expression of love. To jump on top of the grenade, to take a bullet for, the, for a friend, but it is precisely the opposite of what was happening in Corinth. In the place of self-sacrificial love was shameless self-centeredness. A group of so-called Christians who wanted to walk on top of one another to do anything they needed to do in order to claw their way to the top of the heap. This was a church that had many things that was working in their favor. Good preaching, an abundance of spiritual gifts. But Paul reminds them all of these things are worthless if they are not built on the foundation of love. For what does Paul say? If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all, all that I have away, if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. There is no such thing as loveless Christianity. And Paul wants to make that point very clear to a church that was miserably failing in this area. And so here in the concluding chapter, the Apostle Paul gives us a number of examples of how this kind of Christian love should be demonstrated in the church as we hold, as we hold the fort and as we earnestly contend for the faith. One important way that we Christians can show our love and further the interests of the kingdom of God is to contribute financially to those in need. And this was a concern that was very much on the heart of the Apostle Paul. Have another look at verses 1-4. to Now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. One of Paul's big ministry projects that he was working on throughout his third missionary journey was a collection of a financial gift from the Gentile churches that would help relieve the poverty of their Jewish brethren in Jerusalem. You see, Paul understood in these formative years of the Christian church, there was a clash of cultures, tensions between Jews and Gentiles that came out of centuries of mistrust and radically different ways of doing things. And one practical way that Paul sought to overcome these ungodly attitudes was by demonstrating love in a tangible way as the Gentile believers made sacrifices financially for the sake of the Jews. This was a practical demonstration that the wall of division had indeed been abolished by Christ and that former enemies had been brought together into one spiritual family through Jesus Christ and in the Christian church. Charitable giving was an important expression of love in the early church. It is still a vital way we love one another today, setting aside a portion of our income by giving it back to worship in worship to the Lord. Well, a second way we see we can show our love as Christians is by spending time together as we see Paul doing in verses 5-9. to I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of effective work has been opened for me 
and there are many adversaries. I find it remarkable that after all of the ways that these Corinthians had mistreated Paul, after all of the unkind and unfair words that were spoken behind his back, he loved these people dearly so much that he wanted to come to them and to spend extended period of time with them. Writing out this epistle, sending it by the hand of Timothy, was a good way to begin to address the problems in Corinth, but Paul knew there are some issues in the Christian church that cannot be resolved at arm's length. As Christians, we need to be willing to sit down together, to spend time together, to invest deeply in one another's lives, just as Paul wanted to do with the Corinthians. And although God's providence prevented Paul from coming as quickly as he'd wanted, we're told over in Acts 20 verse 3 that Paul did indeed return to this city for a period of three months that Paul kept his word. He invested deeply in repairing and strengthening the relationship. Third way we show love in the body of Christ is by extending hospitality to one another as we see in verses 10 and 11. When Timothy comes, see that that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as as I am. Let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers." As Christian people, we ought to be willing to extend hospitality by opening our homes to one another, by going the extra mile to embrace and to welcome our Christian brothers and sisters. When I was first starting seminary, Leslie and I were driving to Chicago one Sunday. We decided to stop off at a little church in Delhi, Ontario, where my Greek tutor was serving as the pastor. Me and this pastor had corresponded uh, through distance education, he'd marked all my papers and exams, but I'd never met him in person and I wanted to stop and hear him preach. You know, to be honest, I don't remember anything at all about his sermon that Sunday, but what I do remember is the fact that the pastor and his wife invited us back to their home for dinner and then offered us a place to stay overnight. That was something we weren't expecting at all. It was a practical expression of Christian hospitality and love to total strangers. It's the kind of love and action that should characterize all of our relationships within the body of Christ. Fourth way to demonstrate love within the Christian family is to submit to godly leadership as we learn in verses 15 and 16. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. Don't know a great deal of information about this man named Stephanus, but since the time Paul baptized him, it seems that he had been recognized as a leader within the church and that perhaps he was serving as an elder, as a deacon among the Corinthians. Stephanus was one of Paul's lieutenants, and here in the concluding chapter, the apostle reminds the believers to respect spiritual leaders like Stephanus, those entrusted by God to train and equip the troops so they are always ready to go into battle. You know, there is no such thing as an army without an authority structure. And in the Christian church, God has established godly and qualified authorities for the spiritual good of His people and for the successful completion of the mission. And so one of the ways that we learn here that we can express our love for the Lord is by submitting to the leadership that He has ordained for the church. Fifthly, Paul models a simple way that we can show love in verses 17 and 18. 
I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The Apostle Paul in his time in Ephesus had been refreshed and encouraged by a delegation of Corinthians who had taken the time to come and visit him and to bring him greetings on behalf of the church family. These three men had gone out of their way to show concern for a Christian brother. And now Paul goes out of his way to express his appreciation for them. You know, friends, although it's never right to serve others with the expectation of receiving recognition, we should always try to express our appreciation for fellow believers and to give honor where honor is due. Let us as believers never use our words to tear others down within the body of Christ, but always to use our words as a means of building others up, of showing our appreciation for service done to the glory of God. Sixth way we can demonstrate Christian love is by recognizing that we as individual believers and as a local church are part of a much larger body of believers known as the universal church. The church as God sees it that crosses denominations and cultures and languages and borders. Look again at verses 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. You know, as Christians who are located in one specific culture, in one specific denomination, in one specific local church, it can be very easy for us to become insular and to forget that we are part of a global family that's incredibly diverse, but yet united around the same Lord and the same gospel. We are part of something that is much larger than ourselves. And because of that truth, we should always remember to pray and to support the church of Christ in other countries to maintain gospel unity with other gospel-centered, Christ-centered churches in our city, in our region. We need to carefully guard ourselves against a tribalistic mindset that cannot see beyond the walls of our own church or beyond the boundaries of our own Baptist tradition. And so, brothers and sisters, let us make it a priority to foster unity with all those who love the Lord Jesus and who embrace the truth of His Word. All those who sacrifice for the sake of the mission for one day gathered around the throne of God will be an innumerable multitude from every nation, from every tongue, from every tribe, from every language. Now finally, in verse 20, Paul encourages the believers in Corinth to greet one another with a holy kiss. Like the head coverings that were worn by the Corinthian women as a sign of submission to their husbands, we are dealing here in the realm of cultural practice and not in the realm of inflexible law. Christian wives are always to show respect for their husbands, but here in our culture, we don't normally express that attitude by covering our heads. We express it in other ways. Now, of course, with that being said, I don't think there's anything wrong if a woman wants to cover her head. In a similar manner, we don't normally show our Christian affection by going around and kissing everyone at the church. And to be blunt, I don't think that's a practice I'd want to encourage today because many people in our culture don't know the difference between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss. And so here in our culture today, we practice the holy handshake. And we practice the holy hug. You'll notice the underlying principle is precisely the same. Christians should have brotherly and sisterly affection for one another. We should not be afraid to express our affection in culturally and morally appropriate ways. Well, that brings us now to the end of the chapter. 
And it also brings us to the end of our, our sermon series in 1 Corinthians. And I trust that you've benefited from our time in this book as much as I benefited from preaching it. And so in light of all of the practical commands that we have considered and examined together this morning, let me encourage you with the Apostle Paul to stand firm in the faith, to hold the fort, for Jesus is coming again to this earth and there is much work left for us to do. But thankfully, our commander has given us all of the resources we need to accomplish this mission to the glory of his name. And so, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Amen.